Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast, where we discuss philosophic and political ideas with adventurous disregard for intellectual trends. I'm Shiloh Brooks from the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm joined today by Paul Ulrich, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Intellectual Foundations Program at Carthage College. Ulrich also developed the Western Heritage course at Carthage and was director of the college's honors program for many years. Our conversation today explores Alan Bloom's 1987 book, The Closing of the American Mind. We discuss Bloom's view of American higher education, the souls of American students, and the effects of popular music on the formation of the American mind. Paul Ulrich, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Thank you, Shiloh. Thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on because you are working on a figure that I find endlessly fascinating, and that is a great teacher and professor by the name of Alan Bloom. And I understand that you had a class with him, that you've done some writing on him. And so I want to have a conversation about him today and that will focus mostly on his views on education. He wrote a very famous book called The Closing of the American Mind, which I'll let you tell people about. But before we get to those things, can you tell us Bloom was both as a scholar, as a teacher, as a man, as you knew him and have come to know him through his writing? Sure, I can start with that. I did take a class with him. In fact, I took quite a few classes with him. Starting in the beginning of my second year of college, I think I took just about every class that I could with him until he died about nine years later. At that point, I was beginning early work on my dissertation. That was at University of Chicago. So I think of him as primarily a teacher, uh, above all, a classroom teacher. He was sort of an unbelievably inspiring presence in the classroom. And by no means was I the only one who was inspired by him. He spent the last part of his career at the University of Chicago, but he famously spent about a decade at Cornell University in most of the 60s, then was at University of Toronto, and then, of course, at Chicago. And in each of those places, he just attracted some of the best and the brightest students there were, and many of whom went on to become extremely influential teachers and scholars themselves. So when I think of Bloom, I, again, my first thought is of him as this powerful overwhelmingly inspiring, penetrating presence in the classroom. And his record, his, his record of professional record really is a testament to that, right? That just the sheer number of professors in political philosophy who were his students directly. Some of your professors. Yeah, correct, many. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Many. Even other professors at University of Chicago when I was there were his students from Cornell days. So I think of him that way primarily. As a scholar, he had kind of an interesting career. By no means am I a, an expert on everything that he wrote, but he was not, I would, I think it's fair to say, the most prolific scholar. He didn't have stacks and stacks of publications. For a long time, he was most famous for his translation of Plato's Republic, which had an extended commentary at the end, or sort of just, he might call it interpretation, explanation of the book that, was, that ran almost to the, a small book in itself. So for a long time, he was really known for that. And then for a translation of a, of a book by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Emile, or On Education, which maybe was a foreshadowing of things to come, right? The closing of the American mind, that his interest in education was already shown there, actually really in the Republic too. But I would also say that when I think of him as a scholar, and, and we're not yet getting to closing of the American mind, but as a, when I think of him as a scholar and one of his great contributions to the scholarly world, I know many people would point out his work on Rousseau, but I also really think of his work on Shakespeare, which many people wouldn't think of at all. But really, there's pretty much a subfield, I think it's not an exaggeration to call it, in political theory, in political philosophy, a subfield of Shakespeare studies, 
it's not unusual to see whole volumes of essays devoted to Shakespeare as a political thinker, to see panels at conferences on Shakespeare as a political thinker. And he really single-handedly started that with these masterful essays on Julius Caesar and Merchant of Venice and Othello above all. And then in his last book, Love and Friendship, there were a number of other essays on Shakespeare. So when I think of him as a scholar, Plato's Republic for sure, which is still really, really widely used, that translation, people find it extremely helpful, as well as the, the commentary on it. But I also think of him as a, as a Shakespeare scholar of a peculiar kind. I might just say one more thing about his translation on the Republic, because that in its own way was groundbreaking because it was an attempt to be a literal translation. And that really started something which now is very much taken for granted that you will expect to find translations, especially of Greek philosophers, who, that are literal. It doesn't simply mean word for word. That's not exactly right. But the idea was to not interpret through the translation, but to, as closely as possible, mirror the text show it exactly as it is, as closely as you can in English, so as to distort it as little as possible. So in other words, it, and that's not just a quirk, hey, why not have a new kind of translation? It really went hand in hand with a kind of respect for the art of writing that the, Greek, that the philosophers practiced. And so the translation itself too, it wasn't, again, not just a translation, but it came sort of loaded with a thought behind it, that there, you can really read with tremendous care read each of these authors with tremendous care, and that the translation will not really be enough, but it will get you pretty far right, mm -hmm. if you do the translation in the right way. So I think of him, again, above all, as an incredible teacher in the classroom, just extremely inspiring. And again, it wasn't just me, but as you, again, <laughs> you, as, as you know, many, many great, unbelievably influential teachers of genius, really, I don't think that's an exaggeration to say, yeah. were first inspired by him. Yeah. And continue to be. I know I take Absolutely. him as a model for myself and for people who are interested in, in hearing Bloom sing him. You can get on YouTube and you can search Alan Bloom and you can, you know, you can see him giving interviews or lecturing on, you know, various topics. So he's still out there for you to find. I want to talk in particular about what was his most famous book, Closing of the American Mind, in particular because, you know, higher education uh, is again under siege. Maybe it's always been under siege. Maybe it's certainly been under siege since the 80s, yeah. but this is in the headlines today, more than I can recall it being in the headlines, say, the past 10 years or so. What are our colleges good for? What exactly are they teaching there? What, what's happening to the students? Who exactly are the students? These sorts of questions. And Bloom, given that he was a teacher of great capacity and of great sensitivity, was plugged into some of these questions you know, very early on. And so, and, and in a way gave rise to some of this, but in, as you'll sort of point out, some of this existed before he uh, came along. So can you tell us just briefly, what is the closing of the American mind? What's the purpose and the intention of the book? What message does it try to communicate and by way of addressing what themes? So just kind of a summary of the book. <laughs> I know that's hard to do. <laughs> it, as I went through it for the first time, it's just a couple of years ago. First of all, I went through it and it's about 350 or so, very long, very dense pages. So a summary, thank you. We have about 50 more minutes. I can summarize it in, in 50 minutes. So it's an extremely long and difficult book that covers, holy smokes, the history of philosophy on the one hand. A sort of overview of the character of students today, on the other hand, it, it really is a remarkable book in that I think it's very hard to summarize because Bloom, in a way, is able to, in fact, summarize the whole history of philosophy. <laughs> so thinking enormously broadly, in a way, literally from Socrates to Heidegger. In fact, one of the sections is called From Socrates' <laughs> Apology to Heidegger's Rectorate. But at the same time, these fine-grained observations of individual students 
who are in his classroom or that he just knows. So it's a really remarkable mix that kind of showed maybe his mix of talents, right? His incredible ability to boil down and synthesize and piece together all kinds of different elements of Western philosophy. And at the same time, to really watch students with great care. And I think so as to see them as clearly as possible without preconceptions about what he was going to find. And so I think it was a mix of things in this book. On the one hand, he was watching students really closely. To put it bluntly, he was kind of distressed by what he saw. And then on the other hand, he saw what could be offered to these students, given his knowledge of the history of philosophy. What could be offered to them? What is there, in fact, on offer for them? And so in a way, what are they missing? So in a way, it's here's what the university at its best can offer, because the history of philosophy is so so rich and, and fascinating, especially as he presents it. And so what's going on with students? Why are they, I wouldn't say exactly resistant to it, but why are they sort of blasé about it? Why are they not intrigued by it, excited by it? Maybe that would be a way to sum up this really, really long and dense book is to say that he's showing you both of these things, what you could get from the study of philosophy if you apply your mind to it. And then what seems to be going on with students such that they don't seem to be pulled into it. Right. I think it, in a way, that may be the way to sum up the book. Is it true that The Closing of the American Mind wasn't the original title? I believe that the working title really was Souls Without Longing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Souls Without Longing. In fact, I think in French, the I'm not going to try to give you the French title with a French accent, but I believe it is translated The Disarmed Soul. Okay. The the French translation. Yeah. He worked, I think, pretty closely with the French editor. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I've read some of the work that you're doing on Bloom, and I'm interested in, and maybe these two things are connected, what exactly does it mean that the American mind is closed? What would it mean for that mind to be open? And I suspect this is tied to something like Souls Without Longing, yeah. that this title would have been as apt as Closing of the American Mind. But why does Bloom think that democracy has, in a way, failed to foster the openness of mind required to take in these great works, what does that openness look like? Yeah, that's a a really tough question because the book sort of starts with a paradox because the title of the book, of course, is The Closing of the American Mind. The book begins with a section called Our Virtue, which is openness. In other words, Bloom is, again, a great observer, not only of students, but of just regular American adults and everyone else. And he says, yeah, we Americans believe that openness really is our virtue. And so he asserts a kind of paradox that what Americans believe openness to be is in fact closedness. So so there's already, right? So again, as you asked me to summarize it, well, okay, so you have to go step by step even through some of these paradoxes. So maybe the way to begin would be to say, well, what does he observe that Americans think openness is? So he says openness really means something like accept everyone and never judge anyone. And that is their version of openness. If listeners are hearing that and saying, well, you've got to be kidding me. He's going to criticize people for not being judgy and being accepting. That sounds like a good start, right? For a peaceful, welcoming, equitable society, right? Where you treat everyone fairly. And believe me, I don't really think at all that he's objecting to that sort of as a way to interact with other people. In no way do I think he's anti-democratic and that he wishes we were more authoritarian or that people were more alike or believed more of the same things. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Rather, I think that what he's saying is that in American hands, acceptance and openness becomes a determination uh, never to even believe judgments are possible. 
So it's one thing to say, look, I accept you as you are. It's another thing to say, it's not even possible to make distinctions. Maybe a way to say it is that judging, of course, does sound harsh, right? A little bit insulting, right? To say someone is judgy, but it's a little different to say, well, you can't even distinguish one thing from another. You just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well, yeah, underneath it all, everything's the same. I think that's the way to think of what he means by our notion of openness, that we are so determined to accept everything that we don't even bother to look for what actual real differences could be and in fact are. Does that start to make sense or am I, is, yeah. it, is it kind of too roundabout of an answer? That makes sense to me. So he has in mind more profound differences than we often think of. I think this is part of part of what he's getting at is that we're so we we sort of start with the idea that we should accept everyone and should never judge. But that means then we sort of have to close our eyes to actual real differences. Right. And so why is this then? I mean, if this is the American character, which I don't know, you've been in the in the room with students for a lot of years. I've been in, in the room with students for, you know, seven or, or so years. Why is this an obstacle to education? This thing that you've described? What is it that education needs that it's not getting from this pseudo openness? Yeah, I think that a way that he comes at it is, for example, to talk about what goes on in the very typical American home. And he, again, is not necessarily singling out broken homes or impoverished homes. He doesn't pretend to know about the problems in those places. He says, look, I've been teaching at these top tier universities. These are the people I know about, and I'm going to write about the people I know about. He says, people in other places have other problems for sure. I'm just not familiar with them, so I'm not including them, not because I'm excluding them out of principle, but because that's not who I know. So what is the problem with the students in those schools? It is that they come to a great book, let's say Plato's Republic, and they say, why would I even bother with this? This, The topic of Plato's Republic is justice. Justice sounds an awful lot like judging. Don't we have to pass judgments in order to come to a definition of justice? Or if I come to a definition of justice, doesn't that mean that I will be judging? It's as though from the start, you've decided that the subject either isn't worth pursuing, or if you could get an answer to the question, what is justice, you would be sort of, that would kind of give you the creeps. Like, I don't want to be in the position to be passing judgment on people. That just seems morally offensive. That just doesn't seem to fit with what a good American does. You know, we, we're accepting, and so we shouldn't be doing that. So in other words, it's as though that kind of disposition, that open accepting disposition, in fact, closes you off to the quest for answers to certain kinds of questions, because you sort of fear in advance that it's going to turn you into the kind of person you know in advance you don't want to be. Mm-hmm. Does that start to make some yeah, sense? Yeah. And so, yeah. so in other words, you have to have a certain sort of longing for answers, true, definitive, final answers to very profound questions. But there's something uncomfortable for American students in not just, well, is it in the search itself or is it in the, the thought that they might possess an answer and then have to tell other people that they're wrong? What is it about them that doesn't want the answer? Why push away the answer or the search even? Yeah, I do think that he is saying this is a feature of democracy as we live it in a certain way because we think every voice should be heard. And believe me, I don't think he's saying every, some voices should not be heard. <laughs> that's, that's not right. But we have that belief and that belief comes with consequences. So it, again, it's not, I'm sure we'll get to this question eventually, it's not as though he thinks, oh, there's something better that we could have rather than the democracy that we all take for granted. And that he himself says, look, I, I bless this society. It allows me to do what I do. He's not looking to change it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come with sort of harsh consequences. And right. so we start with that. 
that we believe that because everyone is equal, everyone's voice is equally valuable. And therefore, you are very, very hesitant to even delve into questions that you sense in advance could lead you to really doubt that, right. to really uh, become someone at odds with that position. Right. With respect to this position and, and sort of this general sentiment that's in the, the air in America, what, well, let me ask you this, what year was Closing written? I want to say it was published in 1987, as I recall. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it took a few years to write. So it's interesting to ask, I mean, given all that you've said to ask the question, you know, I wanted to ask you, what about students disappoints Bloom? You've kind of said some of that insofar as they lack a certain sort of openness that would be required for a genuine search for answers to very profound and deep human questions. What else about students, is there anything else that you can think of that disappoints Bloom or that the kind of equipment that they, he thinks need to learn but don't have? And the reason I asked you about when closing was written is because I'm curious whether, in your view and my view, both of us as teachers today would say our students still smack of some of these things, or whether this has changed now in you know the 2020s. But in general, what disappointed him? You know, there's this general sort of closedness. Are there other features of the young soul or the young mind as it's shaped by American democracy that he thought he has sort of idiosyncratic, let's call it evidence, right? That supports his thesis. So there's a famous section which I teach my students that actually start many of my first semester freshmen with this little passage on books, in which he says, you know, I, I ask my students, what books count for you? And it seems like he tries to pose the question to younger students, so not the students who've already been at the university right. for a few years, but the younger students. In other words, have you grown up with something that really matters to you? And I think that it's easy to hear that question and think, oh, well, he just wants to know, are students cultured or are they well-read in some vague way? But what he really means is, is there some powerful presentation of a set of ideas or a powerful presentation of a character that really sort of lives in your soul and that you, I don't know, maybe you compare yourself to that hero, or maybe you wrestle with the same kinds of questions, let's say that someone might read in, in Crime and Punishment, right? Dostoevsky, that you really wrestle with this. If I can get away with it, does it matter, right? Whether it's right or wrong, is there such a thing as right or wrong? If, or is it just a question of what can I get away with? That kind of thing. He, he looks at students and, and asks them, do you have a book that matters to you? And finds they almost never can say, yes, there is something. And so he's saying, again, not, oh, well, you're insufficiently cultured or you're not educated in conventional way, but that you're not already alive to consequential questions, mm -hmm. something like that. So the, the question about books really is that, are, do you have the furniture inside, in your mind, in your soul, that makes you, that, such that you look at the world and see, again, moral decisions have consequences, or yeah. whether there is morality or not is consequential. Right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I mean, I don't, I'd be eager to hear what your students say when you say, is there a book that matters to you? Because I had a similar experience I just read with a reading group the book Fahrenheit 451. Sure. And at the end of the book, this is not too much of a spoiler, they're burning all the books. This is the premise. And so people who love books have to memorize them. And so the character gets out to this place where there are people who are sort of book sympathizers. And they ask him, what book are you? And he's like, what do you mean? What book are you? And he's, you know, well, Joe over there is, uh, you know, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And Sally over here is, you know, Plato's Republic. They've all, that means they've memorized those books. And so they're, whenever they can get to a place where they can write them down, they'll write them down to preserve them. And so I ask my students, what book are you? And I get often 
young adult literature of this nature. And so I'm curious, you know, given Bloom's, how he fostered a love of books in so many of the teachers who you mentioned and in yourself and in in my teachers and uh, these kinds of things. What do your students say that and how do you respond to, to them? I do actually ask them that, right, as they read this. It's a pretty interesting range. It's <laughs> it's sometimes not too surprisingly Harry Potter, yeah, things I get that like a lot. that, right? <laughs> yeah. And I actually make use of that. I say, oh, so you read that what in order to learn spells? What yeah. Did you, why did you read it? <laughs> and they'll sort of, well, no. So why did you read it? Well, it's fun. Okay, it's fun, but also doesn't it really make you think in some ways? In other words, there are even books like that. Students will admit, sure, of course, I read it. Because in a certain way, it opened up a world to me. Right. It might be a fantasy world, but not simply a fantasy world. In other words, with many books like that, students will admit that they read it and they did not find it useful in any meaningful way, any practical, applicable way, right? But they just loved having their mind expanded. But then as, when you say that, aha, so then will you pursue that same logic throughout your college education? There's, oh, are you crazy? Of course not. I'm going to be an accounting major uh, because that's, I know that I have to do that. So I get these mixed responses. On the one hand, you will find students who love a book that is of no practical value to them, but in some ways does open their mind, right, to all kinds of possibilities that aren't in normal life. Yeah. But then many students will say, well, I read, you know, I don't know. I don't even know if this is an actual book, Walter Payton's autobiography or something like that. <laughs> Why'd you read that? Well, because, you know, he really got the most out of himself, you know, so you often hear students giving that kind of offering that kind of book. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it, it tends to follow a pattern, right? Well, this is someone who the odds were against them, but they <laughs> uh, fought and they, you know, came out on top and they showed what potential they really had. Again, I'm not knocking that. That would be really kind of nasty of me to, or mean of me <laughs> to, to knock that. But the point is, that they believe that is the key, right? Yeah. I have my potential as an individual, as me. I want to be the best me I can be, right? Right. The best version of myself I can be. <laughs> and that's that, I think, is very consistent with is observing that there's no thought of being taken outside of yourself, but rather simply, no, this reinforces all of the thoughts I have about my own potential. And again, living up to my expectations, my own expectations, my own standards that I'm putting on myself and no one else put them on me. And again, we may ask, what the heck is wrong with that? That sounds like exactly what we want students to do. And that's very American. And I don't think Bloom is really knocking it either in a way, but in another way, he's saying, yes, but if that's all that matters to you, you're never pulled outside of yourself. Yeah. That you really just believe I am me. No one should judge me. I'm going to just live up to my potential in the way that I define that potential in the way that pleases me. And there is never any need for me to look left to right up down, I just will look within and see who am I and what can I become. Right. Again, we may ask what the heck is wrong with that, but I think he's saying that there are all kinds of possibilities then that you will never become aware of. Right. If you only look within yourself and think only of the potential that you yourself have without ever thinking about what others who are, let's say, much superior to you, what kinds of potential did they find in themselves? There's an anecdote about Bloom, which I I believe to be true, but I can't verify it, that he said something like, you know, I started to study philosophy because I wanted to learn more about myself. Well, one of the first things I learned was I'm not that interesting. And... uh, (laughs) And I think in a funny way, he really meant that. And he was such an interesting person. It's a remarkable (laughs) thing to have said. But I think he really did mean it, that that is really what it means in a certain way to have a decisive educational experience, to read a book and say, wow, there is a whole world of possibility 
that I never knew of and that I need to sort of overcome my concern for my individual self in, right. in a certain ways, even to see how, again, to judge myself really, I think is, is a way he might say it. To judge myself as sort of too close, too small-minded, too petty, too concerned with my own uh, abilities and not open to the possibility of all kinds of other things I had never thought of. I never knew existed. Right. The benefits that could come from a student thinking they're not that interesting. I just can't even, I mean, it just, it would bloom a thousand flowers because today I I think students are told perhaps by their younger, by their teachers or their parents that they are the most interesting people in the world. And pedagogically, (laughs) that seems like a great sickness. I want to uh, return to one of what I think is, is the sort of the most important themes of the closing of the American mind and um, talk about Bloom's understanding of it. You've already touched on this in a way with the discussion we had about openness and closedness and students not wanting to judge. But this comes out in a kind of theoretical way, the term relativism. And you, you, know, you see Bloom using this term and you hear it some today, although I think it's fallen by the wayside a bit. And Bloom thought, as you, for reasons you've already touched on some, relativism was paralyzing pedagogically. And I'm curious if, if you could elaborate on, on why he thought that, or if there's any more to say other than what you've said about openness and closeness. And I'm also even more deeply curious about the following, and that is, it seems to me as somebody who's, who's spent you know, a good while now in higher ed, that there's still a bit of relativism, uh, certainly, but it seems to me more and more now that students, faculty, and administration, especially when it comes to morals, they know what's true. They'll tell you what's true. And it's, you know, a certain sort of politics or, or moral view that's popular in the university that everyone should adhere to, a certain kind of orthodoxy. And so while there, you know, there's this sort of pervasive relativism, there's at the same time, and you'll hear, you see this in commentary in the news coming from people on the right and these sorts of things. There's also an orthodoxy and no one should depart from what's true at the university. And that's the dang problem with it. And so it's this peculiar combination. So I'm curious whether in Bloom's time was this orthodoxy, or at least was it there? Was it lamented? Is the relativism still here? Is the orthodoxy and the relativism, are they related somehow? Can we make sense of this phenomenon through Bloom? I think that there are ways in which it's very much the same as it was then, that the orthodoxy or the sort of certainty really continues to be that we shouldn't be judging people. I think maybe the terms change a little bit every few years. And maybe the, the, the new groups that we're aware of change every few, or maybe new groups are added every few years of new people we shouldn't be judging and things like that. But I think the, the sentiment is the same. And although it's true that you hear those criticisms, I think mostly coming from conservatives, but I really think that he isn't saying this is a problem caused by the left in America. I think he was in a certain way painted as a conservative, but I think on examination, on reading the book, it's, it's not really clear to me why that is so. I think there's a lot in the book, in fact, that I would say probably a lot of conservatives might not, might not like too much. But what is the orthodoxy? I think the orthodoxy continues to be that, right? That everyone must be accepted. And again, it's not as though he thinks, no, no, some people should not be accepted. I don't think politically that that's his position Mm -hmm. at all. I really do think that he's saying, to some extent reiterating, that he really is saying, you come convinced of that truth, right? That you should not judge. It's as though you believe something about very character of your own mind, that you believe that is a misuse of my intellect to make a judgment. 
And if you refuse to make judgments, as he, he's sort of saying, you, you sort of deny that, as you put it earlier, a quest for clarity is even possible or a quest in which you discover what, what, do I, what am I convinced of that isn't correct? Where am I wrong? You would never even embark on that quest because it doesn't really matter. There is no such thing really as right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And so you just don't even bother getting on that, beginning on that quest for clarity. So in certain ways, I don't think the basic idea has changed. And I think Bloom would say, of course, it hasn't changed because really in a, in a basic way, it's essential to democracy that we have this great variety and that really everything be accepted. That, that he really does, I think, in certain ways, come back to this principle that in a democracy, really in a democracy, we're in a regime in which you, a country in which you understand yourself to be a democracy, putting aside the quibbles, that we're really a representative republic and these kinds of things. The principles are democratic principles. The mm-hmm. principle is everyone is equal. Everyone is free. And so he really does think that if you believe that it is possible to become more certain, you know that you may be in violation of those principles. And that is extremely difficult. And so there's a way in which he's, maybe I would say it this way, he's not exactly condemning students, nor I think in a way is he condemning any of their teachers or their parents, the people who raised them to think this way. He's not really condemning them, but at the same time, he's sort of dismayed by them, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I think maybe when the book came out, this was a real misunderstanding, that it looked as though he was condemning all kinds of people, students, their professors, and so on. But I think that's not quite the way to say it. It is really that he's sort of dismayed that they're not open to the quest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, that's not even the same as saying he's sure there is that certainty is possible. As he puts it in one place, don't believe we're in possession of absolutes, nor could we ever be in possession of absolutes? Boy, that sounds almost like an assertion <laughs> of relativism. But I do think he thinks you can, at the very least, scrutinize what you think and that you can become less certain of what you think. Because relativists, though we are, we're certain about all kinds of things. Right. I suppose relativism and what I've called orthodoxy would have the same outcome, namely inhibiting a certain kind of curiosity. What I have in mind is the following, you know, I've heard this wonderful phrase that students come to college knowing what they're supposed to think about everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this might be from social media that when an event happens out in the world, there are a variety of ways to think about it, but everyone on Twitter knows there's a thing you're supposed to think, you know. And so in that sense, students come, I don't know if this is true, you know, from the 80s to today, but they come with a certain social pressures to think a certain thing, a certain political position, a certain view of a, of a political problem or um, something in a civic conversation. They think a certain way about it because yeah. that's what you're supposed to think. And I, I think it sounds like what you're saying is this position, while in a surface way is different from relativism, is in some ways an outgrowth of it or related to it. Is that? Well, I think that we, we could say this, that Americans are kind of torn between, on the one hand, wanting to have a great, diverse, and varied society. Yeah. And I don't know, I go through my catalog of different kinds of Americans, and I think, is there anyone who wants a monoculture, and anyone who really is against diversity? And that seems highly unlikely that people would be willing to say, no, 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 I really don't want diversity. On the other hand, I think Americans are very wary of being too far out of line <laughs> with what they think they're supposed to think. And I think that what Bloom was pointing out is that the diversity tends to be in very, very small details, right? So people dye their hair a funny color. 
or they get tattoos and things like this. And they can't really even think of another way to be different. And so I think those kind of go together that on the one hand, we really want diversity, maybe in a way we feel that the presence of diversity will enable us to show how open we are and how accepting we are, and then we can feel good about ourselves. On the other hand, we really do believe, well, everyone is equal and everyone's kind of the same. And if they're too different, we maybe start to worry that they could become a challenge to democracy. So I think the orthodoxy in a funny way is, yes, we believe we all should accept everyone, no matter, regardless of different they are from us. And yet the reality is we have a very hard time seeing much in the way of real significant differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. What, let me, I, it would be wrong of me not to ask you this next question. Yeah. And I guess it gets to what, what are the causes of this way of thinking, this way of thinking about diversity that you've put it. But more than that, I have an interest in this philosopher named Nietzsche. I recall that there is a section on Nietzsche and the closing of the American mind. We've done a podcast with uh, Jeremy Fortier. So when you talk about some of these things, I haven't read closing in a few years, but my mind goes back to Bloom pinning certain aspects of the American character on certain Nietzschean way of looking at the world. And so I'm curious if you could address what is the chapter on Nietzsche doing in the closing of the American mind? What is that there for? And why is Nietzsche in particular devoted, given a chapter? Gosh, that is something kind of caught me there a little flat-footed, <laughs> to be honest. It, so I'm going to have to take a stab at this because Give that your is best not shot. something at the, off the top of my head. Give me your best shot. But certainly Nietzsche... <laughs> You probably discovered this yourself or had maybe had this experience yourself and certainly see it in students that Nietzsche is often the entry point to philosophy for many young students, right? It certainly was for me before I knew Bloom. I read Nietzsche and found that exciting. I think there's a way in which I would argue. Let me, let me, how about if I argue it from, from my point of view? Yeah. I would argue that Nietzsche in a certain way encourages what I think Bloom would see as democratic impulses, democratic instincts. Because I think there's a reason why young people can feel so drawn to Nietzsche as though Nietzsche is speaking to him or her individually, saying, you have this power in you, right? And this, this homogenizing blah society around you is stifling you, is squashing your yeah. creativity and your inner force that you surely have. And that Nietzsche appeals to people precisely because they feel so suffocated and lost in a democratic society. Yeah. Is Bloom blaming Nietzsche? I'd have to go back and look well, I don't at know. Text, Maybe that's uh, an overstatement of it. Yeah. You know, my view of that, and I think I mentioned this to you before, has always been, you're right, and Bloom's right, that there is this impulse in Nietzsche. I always thought, well, Nietzsche had a favorite American author, and that's Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Nietzsche carried Emerson everywhere he went. And it was among the most marked up copies hmm. of any book that he had was his Emerson. And there are letters home to his sister that say, you know, I've lost my Emerson. Can you send me Emerson in German translation? It occurs to me that rather than Nietzsche sympathizing, Nietzsche bringing it to America, in a way, America brought it to Nietzsche. I don't want to get into this and yeah, I want yeah. to talk more about Bloom, but I, I just encourage listeners to think about Emerson, the great American writer's role in Nietzsche, and some of the things that Bloom says are in Nietzsche that, that ring true in the American heart. And he might not dispute this, that those were in the American heart long before Nietzsche gave voice to them because Emerson and, and Whitman and others give voice to them. And Nietzsche was an avid reader of Emerson. I think that what I mean, maybe a way to think about that is that he talks a lot about sort of what becomes of things in American hand. If I remember correctly, 
There is a section, is it in Zarathustra, called the pale criminal on this man who wants to kill for the joy of the knife, right? Isn't that the, the phrase? And Bloom points out, yeah, that's how Nietzsche presents this figure, right? Someone who kills for the love of killing and how awful but powerful that is. But in American hands, it becomes something very tame, you know, Mac the knife, you know, this sort of, <laughs> this sort of ditty, you know, this catchy number and that this is what Americans tend to do <laughs> and that they have this ability to do it, right? To take some very daunting and perhaps awful thought and yeah. make it into something very tame and even pleasant. So I would have to go back and, and as in proper Bloomian fashion, yeah, check yeah. the text. I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> but I think that his, his view typically is not, aha, see what Nietzsche did to us, but rather look at what we did with this Nietzschean idea. And yeah. of course, we had to have been open to it in a certain way in the way that it seemed to suit us in the first right, place, right. which is to say, again, each of us feeling, yes, I as an individual have this power if I can just cut through you know, the stifling ponds right. of democratic uh, conformity. Yeah, that's fair. And I, it's also fair to say there's a certain brand of American nihilism, which Nietzsche gives voice to, and I think even today, especially in the youth. I mean, just as somebody who teaches Nietzsche to teenagers and early 20-somethings, you know, Nietzsche's diagnosis of what nihilism is and means and does to you and makes you feel rings very, very, very true with a lot of my students. And I always stupefied and, and I marvel at that. I, it doesn't surprise me, but I, I'm moved by it every time it happens. And I suspect you might see something of that nihilism too. Yeah, I think there's a reason why he may focus on Nietzsche a bit, and he did teach Nietzsche sometimes. And that is because I think the right student could see, okay, there's a kind of way in which I feel like Nietzsche is speaking to me. Yeah. But, okay, but let's see, what does he really say? Yeah. Is this something benign? Is this about you and your creativity? Or is it something much more consequential than that? If this is really the case, right, that, that really there's, it's the powerful individual who should be completely free to express his, his or her power, well, does that really fit with democracy, right? Yeah. In this art, in a certain way, it feels like it does, but maybe if we read Nietzsche very carefully, or maybe you don't even have to read that carefully, you just have to not miss what he's saying. Maybe that's exactly the kind of thing Bloom is saying. There's something very anti-democratic in that, mm -hmm. that looks just sort of benignly a little at odds with democracy or something like that at first, but really it's profoundly anti-democratic. And that maybe that's the kind of thing he actually thinks an open mind would at least consider. Right. That this great thinker could really be anti-democratic. Right. Yeah, this makes sense to me. And I, I'm going to go back with you. Maybe we can do it together yeah. and look at the Nietzsche sections of closing. I want to ask you about another section of the book. And that is, and it's one that, that when I'm in conversation with friends, when we talk about closing, we always wind our way back to. And, you know, closing is a book you've got to read every three or four years. I'm about due. I think it's been three or four years. But the section on popular music. Bloom is critical of popular music. I'll never forget the line, Mick Jagger tarting it up on stage. <laughs> he seems to not like the Stones. We can, say, we can say that much. But he's critical of rock and roll, although you have said to me you know, before that there are, he has a certain appreciation of students interested in rock and roll. So I'm curious, why does Bloom think that popular music inhibits the imagination and also makes it difficult to have a real true relationship with the great artifacts of liberal education. 
it is true that he says when Rock, I think as he puts it, when it first came on the scene, right, and some of the better students that he knew really were attracted to it because it really was this medium through which you could express rebellion and that the great rock and roll figures were, did represent a kind of rebellion of some kind. And, and oddly enough, he admired that, right, that these students weren't just simply doing as they were told and meeting their parents' expectations, but really were looking for something that looked to them to be really different from what the mainstream society was offering. By the time he was writing closing, and by the way, I should just for the record point out, he's observing these students and the students are really my generation, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, in the book, there's an anecdote or two that I remember, or I mean, I was there, in other <laughs> words, in the classroom when it happened. So when I, it, it may sound to some people as though, ah, yes, this is bashing students today, but really it was bashing me. <laughs> That's and, right. And my generation. So but what is it about popular music? I think it's partly that he's sort of saying it just takes over and that it young people just spend endless hours listening to it so that there's nothing, there's no room even for reading a book. It's not, I think, as though he's denying the artistry or the creativity or things like that. I really do think that he's saying it appeals to a pretty narrow range of emotions, a pretty narrow range of aspirations, yeah, and that it really does appeal. It really is designed to appeal to basically to adolescents. And that seems odd, but I have a, I mean, personally, I think he's probably basically right. And I say that as someone who I think knows an awful lot of rock music and that didn't happen by accident. That happened because I enjoyed it enormously myself and spent those countless hours listening to it. Mm -hmm. But on reflection after decades, looking back after some decades, I think that's probably basically right. That mm -hmm. it, it is it appeals to a sort of very narrow, within a very narrow band of uh, possibilities within the imagination. Yeah, that, I don't dispute that. But would you say that um, that narrowness fits with the narrowness of the young soul such that rather than saying that it appeals to a, a sort of narrow band of the imagination, you can say, well, in a certain sense, in a young person, that band is fairly narrow anyway. And the music can appeal can, how do I put this? The music can serve as a starting point mm -hmm. for reflection on erotic matters. I mean, I mean not sure. every song, but there are certain songwriters of, of rock music who do, I think, probably express profound longings that could lead to something higher. I also think of the folk tradition, you know, telling the people their own story of this, you know, the kind of the suffering of, of human life, you know, political themes from the depression or something of this nature that, that in other words, I, I sometimes think that Bloom is, is largely right. I mean, pop, yeah. popular music is, you know, uh, a lot of junk, especially today, but that there are occasional high points of rock and roll where there is a genuine artist. I mean, again, you can only do so much with three minutes and uh, three chords in the truth. You know, <laughs> you know, that, that only gets you so far. But I wonder whether he doesn't shortchange at least music just a touch that there is some, some way for it to act as a gateway, not 99% of it, but there are a handful of genuine artists who might well I don't know. Yeah, I think it's quite possible. In fact, it is possible that he overstates uh, even in a way the power of it, right? Because among the students, I, mean, I was one of those students who, again, listened to it endlessly. And yet uh, I was also very interested in, in Bloom and in, interested in what he was teaching and uh, yeah. became a professor myself and worked on, that, on those same books. So it's quite possible that he overstates its power. And it's also quite possible that the more you listen to it, the more you actually do appreciate Again, the, the variety of, of creativity, variety of originality, variety of artistry, it seems to me quite possible.
possible mm-hmm. that, that, that rock music can yeah. get to, to other things. I'm not trying to force that out of yeah. you. I just, you know, I'm, I want listeners to think about that, whether there's any profound uh, artists among. But there's music. no question. He, he, <laughs> right. But he is just bashed mercilessly for that, um, yeah. for that section. And it, and it probably does include some of the most over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sentences. That's why I had book. my Mick Jagger. Uh, my sure, Mick Jagger. of course. I don't think Mick Jagger is one of these genuine artists who I'm telling you all about, by the way. I, I, I'm not going to no, name them here. But, but I, I would lump him in with, you know, not the most profound thinkers. But I suspect <laughs> there are some. Anyway, I've got two more questions for you and our time yeah, draws short. Yeah. So I want to ask them, if Bloom, this is going to be hard and, you're, and I need you to answer it in just a few minutes. Okay, but great. if Bloom Perfect. was writing closing today, would he do anything different? And what would that be? And you're not Alan Bloom, but, you know, I'm just yeah. curious if you have a sense for that. It's a good question. Um, but I think, though, that on some of the major points, he would say it's not as though things have, have improved, but nor could they really have improved, right? That from his point of view, as he might say, uh, it starts in the home. But look at the character of the home. What do parents think they should do? How should they raise their children? I should raise my child so that each one reaches his or her own potential. Who's going to blame any parent? believes that and who tries their best to tries their best that their child reach that outcome. They become the best version of themselves. It sounds crazy to even criticize that, right? And quite frankly, I don't know how to criticize that. So I think he would say, no, in a basic way, it hasn't changed because that's the that's what where we are in a democracy. We're we're so thoroughly democratic, small D democratic. The parents themselves don't quite know the basis of their own authority. And so they don't know how to tell their own children, here's what you must do and here's why you must do it. Again, it's not as though he's criticizing the parents even for that. He's saying that's the character of the family in a democracy, that the parents themselves believe that they are, in a very basic ways, the equals of their children. And if, and if that's the case, then how do they tell them, here's what you should think, which would be then the thing that they question later right? This sort of certainty, maybe it's a moral certainty, uh, cultural certainty. How do they come to question that later through one of the great books that Bloom is teaching? So in the, in the most basic ways, I think he would say, no, it has not, it hasn't changed, nor should we really have expected it to change. Um, I think that, as I said earlier, we maybe, fr- we maybe pick up new kinds of terminology and maybe we recognize new groups of people as deserving of our acceptance and our esteem. And, but uh, the basic principles, I think, are unchanged. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that he would insist on that. Yeah. I often find myself walking around campus wishing <laughs> that he were here to diagnose certain things. I mean, I grant the, unchan- you know, the unchanged yeah. character of the fundamental things, but I would love, and I'm sure you as somebody who sat in the classroom with him would love to hear him for 30 minutes sort of wax on the contemporary university situation and the controversy surrounding it. Let me, let me ask you this question. It's something that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast when we talk about one of these sort of luminary uh, thinkers or even the, the great philosophers in, these, in this case. And Bloom certainly is not that and wouldn't say he is that, but he, right. would, he, he would want you to read more than just the closing, I suspect. And so what, if, if somebody out there is listening to this and thinks, all right, well, maybe I'll pick up Closing of the American Mind. But uh, you said some things earlier about um, Bloom having done some, some good essay work and, uh, you know, he's got a couple other books. What are the handful of things that you might recommend people look at outside of the closing that Bloom uh, wrote? I would say two things. One is the very first book that he published was called Shakespeare's Politics with uh, several essays on, on specific. Each one is on a play, a play by Shakespeare. And then there's also an essay by Harry Jaffa on the opening of King Lear. 
his essays on Shakespeare are really, truly remarkable and remarkably original. So he did those early in his career. He also did them at the very end of his career in his last published, posthumously published book called Love and Friendship. So there are essays on Shakespeare there as well. I recommend those just because, as I say, their sheer originality, that this is something that no one else had done before he did it. He has an amazing ability to bring uh, the Shakespeare plays to life in, in a way that uh, I, I don't know of other scholars doing. So there's a way to, just to see his, his almost strongest innate talent, I would say, go to those essays. Again, Shakespeare's Politics, his first book, and then Love and Friendship, his last one. But I would also say there's an essay he published. Well, he originally gave it as a talk at Harvard. Originally, it was called Western Civ and Me. And I think he <laughs> somewhat advised him to change that title to, <laughs> just title. Western, yeah, to just Western Civ. I think people thought uh, maybe it was a little too smart alecky. Uh, but he changed the title of that to Western Civ, and he published it in, in the book called Giants and Dwarfs, which is right. just a collection of essays. I think that that is an excellent uh, essay to read. It's not terribly long. And I think that it, it clarifies what was he really trying to accomplish with Closing the American Mind. I think that there are lots of ways in which that essay is a response to objections that people would make to the book now, even after 35 years later or wherever we are exactly in, on the timeline. It's also, I think it, it includes responses that you would see to the teaching of the the so-called Western canon today. I think that uh, it's an extremely insightful uh, and far-seeing uh, little essay. It just looks like this thing he sort of dashed off as a, as a talk at Harvard, but, but really answers, or at least yeah, it provides answers to responses to his critics then, but the, the, the critics now as well. So Western Civ, uh, a little essay in uh, Giants and Dwarfs, definitely something to yeah, certainly if you're interested in this podcast, you know the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, I would say that this essay is a must. Paul Ulrich, I want to thank you for being on the Free Mind Podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The Free Mind Podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado at Boulder. You can email us feedback at freemind at colorado.edu or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Benson.